This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When a house exploded in northern Colorado a year ago, it wasn't immediately clear there was a connection to oil and gas drilling in the area. Two people died. Mark Martinez and Joseph Irwin were in the basement working on the water heater at the time. Aaron Martinez was upstairs and was severely injured. The local fire chief spoke out a couple of weeks later. Firestone is a small and tight-knit community. Many of our community, including our first responders, knew Mark Martinez and Joey Irwin very well. And he announced what had happened. Gas had leaked into the house. Analysis of the gas found that it was pre-refined product directly from the wellhead that had not been odorized. It is much more volatile than refined gas, such as natural gas and propane, that are used in everyday consumption. In other words, an odorless gas from an abandoned energy line had leaked in. This fugitive gas found an ignition source just prior to 4.46 p.m. on April 17th while Mark and Joy were in the basement and erupted into a sudden and violent explosion and rapidly expanding fuel-fed fire that destroyed the home, taking the lives of Joey Irwin and Mark Martinez. Calls for new regulations came almost immediately. Now, a year later, we're asking what's really changed for Firestone, where the accident took place, and for other Colorado communities where oil and gas operations are either underway or were abandoned years ago. CPR's Grace Hood and Ben Marcus have been reporting this story all year, and thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks. Are Coloradans who live near oil and gas operations or flow lines any safer, Grace, than they were a year ago? Well, you know, a new suite of regulations passed by state regulators seems to suggest so. Oil and gas companies have to work a lot more closely with the 811 system. And this is the call before you dig system. And so this makes sure that flow lines are clearly identified before local homeowners or contractors dig underground. Um, There's a lot more specific information on where underground flow lines are located across the state. And, you know, there's more standard procedures for how these lines will be tested, maintained, and eventually abandoned in the future. And there's going to be also more money now for the state to pay and cap abandoned wells when companies cannot afford to do so. So there's uh, a lot of changes that have been made. But, you know, for me, I've walked around the Oak Meadows neighborhood since that explosion happened over the last month. And uh, there's some people who saw that explosion, they still feel uneasy. Others have completely moved on, but I think there's still open questions about property values and public safety. We're going to talk more about home values in a moment. Um, At the time, uh, the governor called this a freak accident. Do we know if that's true? Was this really a freak accident, Ben? I think that that's basically right. I mean, in my seven years here, I've never heard of that happening. And homes that have exploded because of oil and gas operations, the very few times that's happened, it's because they were built on top of old abandoned wells. This was a home that was close to a well. There's lots of homes in Colorado that are close to wells and they don't explode. I think that this was a kind of freak confluence of factors. This was an old well built 25 years ago. The well changed hands to four different companies by the time Anadarko took control of the well. And in that time, a housing development had moved from the south close to that well. 
And so we don't know a lot of what exactly happened, but we do know that as that housing development moved south towards the well, that flow line was cut at some point, and then the well was turned on, the flow line filled in you know, gas into the soil and into the basement of the house until it exploded. Uh, I do think it is a bit surprising that this hasn't happened before, though, given the amount of oil and gas development in Colorado. We're talking about a century's worth of oil and gas development on the Front Range. The COGCC, the regulatory body of oil and gas was created 50 years ago, right? So there was a half century of development in Colorado that occurred before there were even regulations in place. And you have all this oil and gas development meeting all this housing development. And so I guess it is somewhat surprising that we haven't seen this before. And I think the point you're making there is that this cuts both ways. In other words, it could be that oil and gas operations move in next to homes. And it can be that homes move in to oil and gas operations. Let's talk more about the regulations, the safety measures you mentioned, Grace. I want to revisit something the governor told me last spring. We're going to be redoubling our efforts to make sure that we are, you know, supervising and, uh, if you would, uh, auditing, uh, making sure that those, that the, all the uh, flow lines get checked. Obviously, some of the flow lines are abandoned. The companies that put them in place no longer in business. Uh, I think that's where we're also going to put effort to say to work with local counties and municipalities to really make this a statewide effort to let's get all this stuff on on paper. Let's get a map of where each flow line is and then make sure that the local communities and neighborhoods uh, can have access to that information. It should be public. In my opinion, it should be public information. Okay, so Grace, you talked about having a better idea now of where flow lines are. But what happened to the idea of mapping all the flow lines so that we know conclusively where oil and gas flows beneath homes, businesses in the state. Yes, uh, this has been such a huge bone of contention. And when the regulations I mentioned at the top were finalized in February, what we kind of ended up with were two systems. So um, we have this uh, Form 44 that's going to be start appearing in about a month. And so companies have to fill out this form, and it requires kind of basic location information of flow lines, um, you know, within several feet of specificity. Companies will also have to deliver a much more detailed geodatabase mapping of new and existing underground flow lines. And that information will not be available to the general public. It'll be made available to local governments if they ask for it. But uh, one really key point here is that companies are going to have to give the COGCC permission to share the detailed geobase info with local governments. So one thing I'm really going to be watching is to see what companies opt out and say, hey, we we, will give this detailed information to the COGCC, but we don't want local governments to take a look at it. And so do you sit here today, Grace, saying you know much more uh, about where flow lines are than, say, you did a year ago? I do, because the governor issued an emergency order immediately after Firestone, and that required uh, companies to map the start and end point of lines near occupied buildings. So we do have more basic information. But, you know, a lot of local governments, anti-fracking groups say that, you know, so much more detail is needed about where these lines actually go between the start and end points. And we'll start to see some of that later this year, but how available that information is really remains to be seen. Yeah, whether that is public information or not, state regulators did do uh, a sort of formal review of oil and gas operations. Lines were pressure tested. 
And I think about a quarter of 1% failed. Do I have that right? You do have that uh, right. So a quarter of 1% failed. Um, These were mostly lines near homes and buildings. These inspections are required to happen every year, but the timeline really got compressed due to the governor's emergency order. And so these lines were either repaired or they were shut down until repairs could be made. Has there been any compensation for the victims of that explosion a year ago? We don't know yet. I'm sure there are some settlement negotiations going on between the family and Anadarko, but Anadarko is not talking to us. And, and I've tried to both talk to the family and the company, and neither are talking. Uh, in fact, the company has said because of various legal actions, because of the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board investigation, they really can't talk to us about anything, whether it be legal matters, settlement negotiations, the investigation, how they run their business. And that has been, uh, that's been tough. To, that's been tough on this reporting as we've moved forward. You are listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by our reporters, Ben Marcus and Grace Hood, a year after a home explosion in Firestone, Colorado, that raised lots of questions about the future of oil and gas development and its regulation in the state. Uh, you, you did talk to Anadarko, correct, Ben? But they, they just wouldn't talk to you about the compensation. We, we talked to multiple representatives, multiple ways. We tried to skin it every way we could, and the company just will not can't, or cannot speak to us about these matters. Okay, to this idea that we raised earlier, home values. There was fear after this explosion that home prices might collapse. A homeowner named Sarah Kirk talked to a Fox 31 reporter at the time. After the explosion three blocks down the street, she now wants to move out, but fears her house will no longer sell. Definitely feel trapped. I wouldn't want to buy a house here now. Has that happened? How have home prices in Firestone in particular been affected by the explosion? So we obtained data from RE Colorado, which is the listing service here on the front range of tracks sales and sales volume. And we did see after the explosion, prices fall in the city of Firestone and sales volume go up. Now, what's interesting, though, is that corrected pretty quickly. So sales prices got back to normal pretty quickly after the explosion. And I think that that indicates just how strong the housing market is in Colorado, that even if your town becomes the focus of an oil and gas well explosion, it's still a place where you can afford a five-bedroom house for $350,000. And there are very few places in Colorado where you can do that. So I think, But we also don't know, we can't drill down into the Oak Meadows neighborhood, where I think that if we could, we would probably see a different picture. The city of Firestone General is as much as we can get. If we got into that neighborhood, I think we would see more price volatility. If you could get more micro. Absolutely. And what's interesting, you played that cut from um, Sarah, a homeowner, and I met someone who was almost exactly in that situation a year later, someone in a a feature that I filed um, for CPR, who says, hey, I really want to sell my home, but I'm just concerned um, you know, about putting it on the market. At the same time, I was knocking on doors and I saw a for sale sign and um, met a couple where they put, you know, this was a couple of blocks away from Twilight Avenue and uh, their home was under contract in three days. Uh, and they had no trouble selling their home. So it's kind of some mixed anecdotes huh. there that we hear. And I saw in your Twitter feed a photo, Grace, of the plot where the Martinez home was. It's just yes. an empty dirt lot at this point? It is an empty dirt lot, but the home right next to it, you can still see burn marks. So it's the, the scars are definitely still visible. And you will be exploring the repercussions all this week. Thanks to both of you. Thank Thanks. you. CPR Energy reporter Grace Hood and business reporter Ben Marcus. Their stories indeed air this week, a year after a home exploded because of gas that leaked from an abandoned line below the soil. 
Last week, the Denver City Council said it would not investigate claims of sexual harassment against Mayor Michael Hancock. The charges were made by a Denver police detective who used to work on Hancock's security detail. There were times that he said I looked sexy and that he, I would make it hard for him to concentrate. That was Leslie Branch Wise speaking with Denver's Channel 7 about text messages sent by Hancock in 2011 and 2012 when she worked on his security detail. The city council said it lacked the legal authority to investigate, but members say they'll create a policy to handle future complaints. And joining me now is Councilwoman-at-Large Robin Kanich. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. Great to be back, Ryan. Uh, We'll begin by saying that Mayor Hancock has apologized for his behavior regarding the texts. Uh, In announcing the decision not to investigate, Council President Albus Brooks said, quote, Council is deeply concerned that there is not a process to make a complaint against a Denver elected official for sexual harassment. How does a city that was founded 160 years ago lack that kind of process, that kind of accountability? Well, I think we have a democratic history of putting power in the hands of people to hold elected officials accountable. The ultimate accountability is recall or not being reelected. So Denver's not unique, unfortunately, in having limited policies applying to elected officials. But now that we're aware of this gap, it's on us to fix it immediately. That is to say uh, it has been assumed heretofore that voters would oust someone if the behavior was bad enough. You don't think that's enough, just to be clear. I don't. And part of the history here is there's a gap in federal law, the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, where we look for most sexual harassment law does not apply to elected officials because they can't be disciplined. So I think um, we don't have to be limited by limits in federal law, though. We can have policy that applies to ourselves, even if the law doesn't. Okay, so the federal law is not getting in the way here. Without a proper process, do you think it's possible there are a lot of unreported cases at City Hall? I don't have an experience of a culture like that in the city council. I think one of the things we've learned in this process is we don't know enough about the trends in the overall city departments that we don't have control over. So getting better data on complaints, discipline, settlements is a top priority for the council. Okay, will that be part of this current process? Is that a sort of culture assessment? I don't think it's the same kind of cultural assessment you saw at the state legislature. It's more about where do you write down if you discipline someone? How do you count it? How do you report to us on an annual basis? It's a data collection process, really. Okay. Uh, What do you think this policy might look like? And I'll say that the council has said it will cover future allegations. Well, I think we look at a lot of best practices from private uh, sector and other areas of government. We need to have clear choices for victims in reporting, whether that's informal or formal. They should have some say. Okay. And I suppose it's a critical question. This is what the legislature across Civic Center has faced. Is that report made internally to someone's boss? Is it to some independent group? Well, the best practice is to give victims choices. So it might be that there's someone internal and they want the behavior to stop, and that is their primary goal, and they want to have an informal process. That should be a choice. But if and when you are um, dealing with a situation where a victim needs to have more accountability and independent investigation is absolutely a best practice. This is someone who's trained, someone who is neutral, and someone who is outside the political process, who's investigating the facts. Someone who does not sign your paychecks. Absolutely. Uh Uh-huh. And let's be clear, this is uh, particularly for elected officials, right? The city has a process if you're unelected and you are accused of sexual harassment. 
I think for the council, our first priority is both our own elected officials in the council and our appointees. Okay. We have other elected officials, such as the auditor, the clerk and recorder, the mayor. So they, um, in some cases, may have policies for their imp- appointees, but we need to make sure that we have all electeds covered. Do you think it's a bit of a patchwork across the city? It is, and that's part of our charter when it elected um, these individuals independently. It gave them certain powers and authorities on purpose to have a balance of power where one branch doesn't control the other branch. So you have a bit of a tension here between uh, centralizing a process, making it smooth and understandable, but also maintaining some of that independence. How public a process will this be, Robin Kanich? Well, we learned in uh, recent weeks about the state law that really says that cities shall keep sexual harassment investigations confidential. That's not just about protecting a victim from, you know, retaliation. It's not just about protecting someone who's accused so that their reputation isn't tarnished before they've had due process. It's about making it safe for witnesses. And so that's not an optional piece of state law. So any policy we have will follow that state law. The state legislative report you may have seen that came out last week reinforced that this needs to be strengthened, in fact, that confidentiality is key to making these cases successful. You're addressing there the question of how public complaints should be. And I I guess I'd also like to know how public the process of creating a sexual harassment policy or a more defined one should be. Will the public be able to weigh in as you craft this? Got it. Yes. Our first conversation will be at a council operations meeting on the 18th. It's it's usually a routine meeting for things like how do you claim your mileage? It's it's a very rules process-oriented meeting. But we should at that meeting discuss opportunities to take public input like public hearings. We certainly receive a lot of email input. So we do need the community to be a part of this conversation. Is that meeting you just talked about a public meeting? It is. It's one that's not telling. Televised, unfortunately, Uh because it's usually it's it's so riveting. Okay, Uh, are there any model cities? So you talked about potentially looking at business, but do you think that a city has gotten this right, or maybe a county? Well, what we saw is um, Denverite did some great reporting and pointed out San Francisco just simply applies their existing policy to electeds. I'm not sure that's quite the best practice because that generic process may not take into account all the political protections you need. For example, what if someone's lobbying an elected official for influence and that's what's being um, you know, threatened rather than just employment consequences? I do think we might need a unique process. Um, you see in some places voters are looking at making elected officials legally liable um, or creating other you know, types of discipline that might require legal authority that's changed in the charter. So I think we're going to look at all of those. Do you think the city council should be an investigating body? I'm going to share what I learned legally as well as my personal opinion, which is we are not – the political process is not well designed to deliver individual justice. We're designed to do policy. We are designed to help to fill gaps. But individual justice, the political process is is not well designed for it. You know, it's both complicated. How do you have neutrality when you have people who are elected and in tension with, you know, those who may be accused? It's it's just not a best practice. There are reports that the city of Phoenix will ask its voters – whether council members should be able to expel officials for harassment. Uh, That is to say, there is power already in the voters' hands to expel someone, but this would actually put it into council members' hands. Is that a power you would want for Denver's council? 
I think it's important for the community to determine that. I think as an elected official um, where we have community consensus, that's an important power. That would be important for us to consider. I do think at a minimum, we as council need a more formal policy for censure, which is where you call upon someone in your body and you say, you didn't meet the standards of our conduct and we're calling you out publicly for that. That that, that doesn't exist right now. No, we in theory could use Robert's Rules of Order to kind of do it, but we don't have any explicit rule and we need one. Thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Robin Kanich, at-large city council member in Denver. She joined us to discuss that group's desire to form a policy that covers sexual harassment allegations against the city's elected officials. This comes in the wake of recent charges made against Mayor Michael Hancock by a Denver police detective. There are major shifts happening in the news business in Colorado. The state's largest paper, the Denver Post, is begging for its life. In a series of editorials over the weekend, the newspaper took its hedge fund owner to task for cuts that are turning the newsroom into a shell of its former self. Quote, if Alden Global Capital isn't willing to do good journalism here, it should sell the Post to owners who will. Newspaper watcher Ken Doctor, author of the book Newsonomics, says these types of op-eds are unprecedented. I don't think we've seen anything quite like this. Uh, The protests have been mainly coming from organized labor, the Guild. We have seen, in fact, less and less reporting of cuts at newspapers by the newspapers themselves. So this really stands out as a major direct-to-the-reader proclamation of the state of emergency at the Denver Post. Post editorial writers argued the paper, quote, plays a critically important role in its city and state. Not long ago, it had 300 people in its newsroom to do that. The latest round of cuts brings that down to around 70. Doctor says the Post's plea is a combination of bravery and desperation. The editors rightly saw that, uh, as they said, the Denver Post as an institution is rotting and that at the rate it was going, it could well turn out the lights uh, by 2021 or 2022. So this wasn't about 30 more jobs in the newsroom or uh, the more than hundreds of jobs that have been lost. It's about what the community is no longer getting and how the Post is not able to serve the community needs. That is Ken Doctor, news industry analyst with the Neiman Journalism Lab. We'll continue to cover this standoff between the Post and its owners and what it means for Colorado. There's another significant development on the local journalism scene. On Friday, Colorado Public Radio announced that it has chosen its next president, the first leadership change here in 40 years. Stuart Vanderwilt will lead CPR News, Classical and Open Air. He is currently general manager and director of two public radio stations in Austin, Texas. Vanderwilt will succeed Max Wysick, who retires at the end of June. And Vanderwilt joins us from Austin. Welcome to the program, Stuart. Well, good morning, Ryan. It's a pleasure to meet you on the radio. Looking forward to connecting in person soon. I look forward to that as well. How does what's happening with The Post and I suppose other newspapers affect what role you see for CPR when it comes to local news? You know, the strength of public media really is its local ownership and commitment. And public media takes a long view on the delivery of its mission. And so... Um, I feel CPR is is well positioned to 
be a long-term partner with the community in providing uh, important news and journalism, uh, not only for Denver, but uh, across the state. Um, we had a researcher who appeared on our show here, Texas Standard, the other day, who noted a correlation between effective disease research and the presence of local media in communities across Africa. And I think, you know, there's a, a point there to be made that, um, and, and the point that I, I, I heard about the, the Denver Post, you know, the, the, the local media, you know, provides more than um, civic and cultural engagement, but um, it, it really is, in, in many cases, um, you know, a bellwether of the health of the community. Okay. And so um, I think CPR uh, will, will definitely uh, continue to do what it's doing. Uh, but I think there's uh, even more urgency to, um, to expand its role. How much does CPR's future rely on terrestrial radio? I love radio. Um, and, you know, radio in many ways, I would say, is the most democratic of, of medium platforms uh, because it's um, universally available. It's easy to access. It's inexpensive to, to operate. Um, it's, it's ultimately private. You know, uh, what you're listening to the radio today, um, you know, isn't being tracked and you're then fed something that's um, similar uh, uh, to what you're listening today. Uh, so I think terrestrial radio has a has a long future, um, but not to the exclusion, obviously, of of other platforms. And and so. Uh, you know, public media that is both on a, a broadcast, free, over-the-air, universally uh, accessible platform and uh, connecting with people on the, all the platforms in which they choose to consume media is, is an important combination. You are coming to Colorado from KUT and KUTX. So that's an NPR news station and a music service, respectively. Uh, you were there when KUT started its news department, I think, in 2002, and for the launch of that all-music station, which is not, not unlike CPR's open air. And it strikes me that, that Austin and Denver have a lot in common. I mean, growth, gentrification, affordable housing issues. Uh, like Colorado, Texas is a state of real political contrasts. I wonder if you saw those similarities and might even... Uh, enjoy those similarities as you applied for a job in a, a, a place that may, may resemble Austin in some ways. Well, and there's an, there's another characteristic, um, and all of those are absolutely true, Ryan, but um, there's sort of this unique combination of, I would call it a laid-back, go-for-it attitude that, um, you know, people are are very accessible um uh, your your neighbor will reach out to uh, you know to give you a hand. Um, uh, they don't take themselves that seriously, um, but we take our work serious. And I feel you know 
I feel at home here, and I'm sure I will um, absolutely feel at home in Denver. Um, but being a state capital where the decisions that uh, that are made there have impact not only for um, the city and the community, but across the state, and, and that the policies that get enacted in uh, a state like Colorado have impact even beyond its borders, and uh, you see that in so many um, in, in so many areas. And so, those similarities, uh, I, I think, will make this a a, a good uh, transition. But there's also so much that I don't know that I'll be counting on you and your colleagues and the and the listeners and the community um, uh, to help inform me of. If you're just joining us, my guest is the next president of Colorado Public Radio. He's Stuart Vanderwilt, speaking with us uh, from the station that he leads now in Austin, Texas. What are CPR's shortcomings? What should uh, perhaps this news operation, this operation in general, uh, with classical and open air in mind, be doing better? Oh, I couldn't speak to to shortcomings. As a matter of fact, um, CPR is a a jewel in the in the public radio system. Uh, it is um, uh, now, so well regarded I, and I respected. Know, I know, Stuart, that you are you are my future boss here, <laughs> but I'm going to push back against that uh, and say if you if you see room, perhaps not for improvement, but change or change of direction, where might you see it? Well, the way I'd speak to that is to maybe to talk about my my approach, and you know, I bring I bring joy to my work because I love what I do. Um, I love to be connected with the people uh, who are um, who are delivering the public service to our community. I love being connected with the, the community of of supporters and and listeners, and to create what I guess what I call um, a positive urgency. Uh, about doing more, being more impactful uh, uh, in the community and uh, and across the state, and so I, I say that not to suggest that there's any shortcoming, but but to maybe set an expectation of uh, of how we'll be working together. And it sounds like you want to be listening to the community, perhaps to help answer that question, what direction the institution might take. I want to point Absolutely. out that, that Colorado Public Radio receives just a small portion of its budget from the federal government, about 5%. And CPR has long remained neutral when it comes to federal funding through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We just don't take a position or align ourselves with groups like Protect My Public Media. I'll note that you've taken a different approach at KUT, lobbying Congress to continue CPB funding. Would you hope to make CPR an advocate on that issue? You know, I have to learn more about uh, the the position there. Um, but I will speak for Texas. And uh, in Texas, uh, federal funding is essential to, you know, maintaining a free and universal service across the state. There's um, there's an awesome station in Marfa, Texas, where 40% of the funding for that station, which is a sole service for a large portion of Texas. Um, and, and if that funding wasn't there, um, that station couldn't operate. And, and there's a cascading effect that, that happens across the state and across the, the country, um, without the ongoing federal investment, which has recently been reaffirmed um, through the omnibus budget. So, you know, there's great support for 
um, public broadcasting funding across the country and and across the political spectrum. So um, in Texas, uh, we're we're committed to you know demonstrating its value within these communities. And as you point out, that percentage of CPB funding differs from station to station. So the the reliance on it also differs. Uh, very briefly before we go, CPR's next president. What are you listening? to these days? Maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's a band you just can't get enough of. Okay, so I'm I'm not pandering, <laughs> okay. but I loved The Tax Man. Um, I binge listened to, to that podcast in a, in a actually in a, an eight-hour drive from, uh, from here to Marfa, Texas a few weeks ago. Um, awesome, uh, awesome reporting, great storytelling, the production. I uh, really, really um, enjoyed that. You know, other other podcasts, um, I'd encourage people to check out Two Guys on Your Head or this song. Of course, those come from uh, KUT and KUTX. Uh, the Science of Happiness from uh, PRI, um, which is a real antidote to their other um, podcast called Things That Go Boom. Um, those are on my playlist. Um, uh, musically, um, anything by Spoon will always hit my um, playlist. Um, Jade Bird, uh, Lucas Nelson is really making a name for himself. And uh, I would encourage people to check out Lucas Nelson, The Promise of the Real. And I can't not say Nathaniel <laughs> Rateliff and the Night Sweats. Uh, right um, here in Colorado. Who, yeah, who just headlined a show for us um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, what a great band and, um, and a terrific soul. Just talk about someone who brings joy to what they do. Um, you'll find that with that terrific group. Thanks so much for being with us. He's Stuart Vanderwelt, just been named CPR's next president. He talked about the tax man there. That's the podcast related to Tabor and uh, the man who, who dreamed it up and helped make it possible. And I'll say that Vanderwilt takes over at CPR's next president when Mass Wa- Max Weisick retires after 40 years here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Marijuana as a political issue is a pendulum that has swung back and forth for decades. Guess who this is, and more importantly, when he said it. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana, leaving the states free to adopt whatever laws they wish concerning marijuana. Okay, that is President Jimmy Carter in 1977. Now, he was preceded and followed by presidents who took a harder line, Before him, marijuana was made a Schedule I drug under Nixon. After him, the Reagan administration brought us Just Say No. And today, the pendulum keeps swinging. Author Emily Dufton writes about this fascinating history in her book, Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. Emily, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. This book is not just the story of presidents, but of, as the title suggests, grassroots activists like Brownie Mary, known as the Florence Nightingale of medical marijuana. More about her later. Um, But goodness, when I read this book, I realized how much the marijuana debate today is like deja vu all over again. Did, (laughs) Did you have that sense when you dug back into the movements? 
Well, I developed that sense as I started to do more research, and I realized that was kind of the most compelling part about this entire story, the fact that 40 years ago, we did this to a certain extent, of course. Decriminalization that you could hear Carter discussing in one of his public addresses is not the same as recreational legalization that we have today. But nonetheless, the conversations that we were having in the 1970s are remarkably similar to the same conversations that we're having today, which I suppose you can either take as, well, we're still discussing them and and that's a good thing, or maybe negatively, wow, we still haven't solved a lot of the problems of our past. (laughs) How far did decriminalization get back then? It went fairly far. It went further than um, than legalization has spread today. So in five years, between 1973 and 1978, a dozen states decriminalized the personal possession of up to about an ounce of marijuana, um, basically changing the punishment that a person could receive from, at times, a felony down to a civil fine, about the equivalent of a speeding ticket. Okay. And there is talk today of the potential of descheduling marijuana. Uh, How far did that movement or question get back then? That conversation didn't go terribly far. Mm. Um, Even in the Carter uh, quote that you played earlier, he was talking about the state's right to basically um, choose whether or not to decriminalize for the citizens of that state. But rescheduling the drug away from the Schedule One placement that it received in 1970 was actually one of the first things that was discussed when the schedules were were originally constructed, when Nixon lobbied to uh, create these, these five schedules in the Controlled Substances Act. He originally wanted to place marijuana there, And it was temporary, pending the results of a two-year investigation into the scope and depth of marijuana use in the United States. So by 1972, when the results were released, and they ultimately came down on the side of decriminalization, huh. Nixon was supposed to <laughs> reschedule the drug at that time. But because he was so philosophically and morally opposed to doing so, he kept it there. And that's why it's been there ever since, really with no concentrated conversation on the federal level about changing that anytime soon. Oh, that's fascinating. That was supposed to be temporary, uh, indeed. Yeah. It, it turned out to be incredibly Uh, permanent. Um, Mm -hmm. You found that marijuana's political standing is often connected to other big movements, like the youth movement of the 60s and 70s protesting the Vietnam War, later on in the 90s with the gay rights movement. Help us understand how, uh, as the subtitle of your book says, the rise and fall and rise of marijuana in America is connected to larger movements in this country. Absolutely. And I think it has worked itself, it has sort of joined itself to these larger social movements over the past 40, 50 years, because ultimately conversations about marijuana are very rarely about the use of the drug itself. It's so much more about larger questions and layers of meaning that we place upon it and its users. So marijuana, for the most part, can be tied up in questions of identity, in public health, in social justice, in levels of incarceration, in um, you know medical necessity, all these other things. So when you have these larger conversations surrounding this drug use, it makes it easier to tie into larger conversations. So in the 1960s, for example, when marijuana, when the cause for legalization was being tied into uh, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and the larger counterculture, that was because questioning the 
validity or legality of marijuana laws spoke to the youth movement's larger questioning of a series of federal stances. Hmm. So why are we in Vietnam? Is the government lying to us about the necessity of segregation? Is the government lying to us about the necessity of criminalizing marijuana? These larger sort of anti-authoritarian uh, rushes, you know, these larger questions is what brought legalization quite firmly into that uh, sort of leftist counterculture fold. But I, in the same way... Oh, sorry, keep no, going. You, no, you keep going. You're the guest. Ah, thank you. <laughs> but in the 1980s, when you saw marijuana joining with the gay rights movement, that was because marijuana, after nearly a decade of being demonized during the Reagan administration, uh, had been resurrected in a certain way as a potential panacea for a drug that, or for, excuse me, for a disease that no one really understood, which was HIV AIDS. Mm. So when you started using a drug that no one trusted, and it was starting to help people who had a disease that no one trusted, again, you saw marijuana align with a larger movement there because it became about questions of identity and safety and, and caring for those who, who seems like a lot of other people had abandoned. So marijuana activists make a good amount of progress, as you describe, in the 60s and 70s. And then the 80s come along and President Reagan is elected. And it seems that there's a pretty big change in both marijuana policy and sort of the discussion in the in the country. But why? Well, this is fascinating. So one of the biggest things I learned when I was researching this book is that marijuana laws and changes in policy never have really occurred from the top down. We so much associate them with presidents and attorneys general and right. first ladies, um, but it never really works that way. The positions that these very, you know, very uh, sort of large, all-consuming political figures hold on these drugs have always been inspired by grassroots movements from activists who are on the ground whose influence reaches up. So when Reagan was elected in 1980 and he comes to Washington and his wife Nancy is now first lady and she needs a platform, she didn't necessarily choose, you know, anti-drug, uh, adolescent anti-drug abuse prevention because there was so much youthful drug use going on. In fact, it was actually declining at the time. Oh. But she did it because there was a widespread national um, organization of grassroots parents who were very, very distrustful and very opposed to the decriminalization movement that had swept across the country in the 1970s. And by the time the Reagans come to the White House, they even have a national lobbying group that was adjacent to Washington, D.C. and Maryland, and were pretty much perfectly aligned to influence how the First Lady then approached adolescent drug abuse prevention with a very strong anti-marijuana stance. And that's really the story of this book, Emily Dufton, Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and rise of marijuana in America is these grassroots uh, movements, both on the pro and anti uh, marijuana sides that wind up being incredibly consequential. One of the characters you write about is a liberal mother in Atlanta who in the late 70s is becoming increasingly concerned about the spike in marijuana use among children. Uh, her name is Marsha Shuhard, nicknamed Keith, actually. Um, and she's a major figure in this parent movement you're talking about, right? She's huge because she becomes one of the most powerful grassroots activists in late 20th century American history. This, you know, mom from Atlanta, originally actually from Texas, but a really fascinating person who, despite her, her extremely liberal credentials, ends up leading a movement that becomes almost, um, <laughs> you know, distinctly aligned with the Reagan administration. And she 
took to this cause because in the summer of 1976, she discovered that her daughter, who was turning 13 at the time, was smoking pot, and she got really worried about it. In fact, she discovered it at a backyard birthday party she hosted for her daughter, you know, really right in their own house. So literally, drug use had followed her home. And she was shocked by this, not because she was unaware that, you know, that that cannabis was used, you know, elsewhere in the country, but that children had such easy access to it. And she blamed this easy access on this culture of decriminalization that had spread quite rapidly and quite vastly across the country that included, you know, a wide variety of paraphernalia in sort of fun, engaging, you know, shapes that seemed to appeal to kids in the rise of all of these magazines like High Times and Stone Age and things like that. And in what seemed to be a larger cultural celebration of this drug that everyone claimed was, hey, it's no big deal. It's harmless. It's nothing compared to, you know, the heroin epidemic that the United States was slowly coming out of at the time. But she said, no, actually, the conversation is quite different when you're discussing adolescent marijuana use versus adult marijuana use. Mm. And kids were gaining access to the stuff. And she feared for the health effects that would, you know, befall them by accessing this drug at such an early age. So ultimately, she joins up with the rest of her neighbors and forms a parent group that uh, has unanimous rules and, you know, sets limits for their children, curfews, things like that. And, and, and as battles, we hear drug- like enormously influential and eventually gaining yeah. gaining the ear of the president and first lady with this movement, e- even though there were questions about exactly what the rate of uh, use was among young people. But why don't we talk about another grassroots figure? So Brownie Mary, who I introduced at the top, uh, <laughs> she is closely connected to the HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, just tell us briefly about her. Yeah, I really love Brownie Mary. She's she's one of my favorite uh, historical figures in this book. She was an IHOP waitress in the Castro District in San Francisco. Uh, she had a daughter. Uh, her daughter died when she was 19 in a drunk driving accident. And so she began adopting all of her neighbors in the Castro District, the majority of whom were young gay men because the Castro was really coming into its own as, you know, Harvey Milk's uh, stronghold as as, a, as one of the you know, first real blossoming gay neighborhoods in America. And so she, of course, starts to notice when her neighbors become sick as well. And she realizes that by baking um, cannabis into brownies and by distributing them to her neighbors who are struggling with weight loss and nausea and all these other problems, that it helped them and that it made them feel a little bit better. And so she starts to realize that cannabis has real medical properties. And she's working with other activists in her neighborhood, including Dennis Perron. And she gets busted quite a few times. Uh, (laughs) But ultimately, she's able to to transform her growing uh, sort of social notoriety into a movement to pass the first medical marijuana law in America in 1996, the Compassionate Use Act in California. And she's a sympathetic figure, obviously. That helps. Yeah, she's yeah. she's always wearing polyester vest. She has thank you for pot smoking stickers and buttons. And she's just, she doesn't take anybody's, uh, she doesn't take anything from anybody. She's a strong woman. <laughs> so we've, we've described the debate around pot as being a pendulum. And, and so here we are today with 30 states that have legalized the drug in some form. And yet we have an administration in office that's not too hot on pot. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has compared it to heroin. Congress, meanwhile, may be interested in loosening restrictions. For example, one of the most conservative members of Colorado's delegation, Representative Doug Lamborn, has expressed interest in descheduling pot so it could be studied for medicinal purposes. 
And you can't do that right now when it's a level, a category one controlled substance. So at least let's take the step of allowing marijuana to be available to researchers. In the last minute or so, where do you think we are with pot today compared to where the country has been in its history? And do you think the pendulum could swing dramatically in, I don't, in some other direction? I guess a pendulum only has two directions, but... <laughs> well, I was in Denver, actually, in February for a book talk, and it was very impressive to me to go into dispensaries and interview people and talk about what they thought they were doing right and where they thought, you know, they could make improvements. And a lot of the problems in the 1970s, you know, marijuana getting into adolescents' hands, uh, the products seemingly very, you know, appealing to children, a lot of those have been... Um, attended to through this newer form of legalization. It's very difficult to get into a dispensary. You have to show ID. Uh, they're protected. The products are obviously marketed for adults, which are all real improvements from decriminalization 40 years ago. Interesting. The other... Pro- Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, but the other issues are potentially that we have to, you know, continue to talk about the effects of racist arrest rates, even in legalized states. Those are still an issue. So not ev- not all problems have been solved. Yeah, indeed. The, the notion of marijuana as an issue related to race, who is penalized for it, has gone back uh, as well decades. That's not a new conversation. Thanks for being with us, Emily. We appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. She's Emily Dufton, author of Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. You can read an excerpt of her book. We'll post it later today to CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News.